I think we were really enthusiastic about it, and people next door were even more than us. But no, thank you so much. I think uh, it's okay if you can. Yeah, sure. I'm questions? Uh, is there any questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did this series of books uh, have any impact on the broader Chinese talk? I mean, how, how were the reception uh, among the non-Muslim among uh, Chinese? Or is there any influence? Yeah, so um, any influence would be, uh, yeah, it's hard to say. So, uh, I'm speaking, of course, of a kind of a small elite type of community. Um, so even among Muslims, uh, many of them are not interested in these books. Uh, so I guess I should make that clear if, if, I, if that wasn't clear already. Uh, so especially in like Northwest China, where we were talking about, many people in their everyday lives wouldn't be reading these texts, wouldn't be familiar with these texts, these kind of things. Um, so it is part of this kind of, it's internally focused on this kind of educational network and these kind of uh, highly literate type of uh, Sino-Muslims. In terms of outside of the community, uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, kind of effect. Um, what, what I was kind of uh, alluding to at the end is this idea, you know, of the, the kind of preparedness of the reader will determine kind of what they take out of it. So... If you didn't know these were Islamic texts, you, you could read them, right, if you're familiar with the Chinese uh, kind of cultural context, and they would, they would make somewhat sense in kind of a Confucian type of uh, uh, philosophy. Um, so the, the type of evidence that we have for this, we do have, um, or many of the texts in this tradition um, have prefaces, um, some by uh, their, their co-religionists in the sense that um, you know, they would, they would go around uh, and have, uh, so Luger, for example, would go around and have other Muslim scholars within this tradition write prefaces for his text. Uh, but many of the others would have basically local uh, kind of Han uh, administrators, these kind of things, write prefaces. Um, so there, there are lots of those, and often the, the gist of what they're saying is... Uh, that even though they kind of receive their authority from a different uh, power, right, in the sense that these kind of from God, in a sense, right, they kind of reject that. Uh, they have mastered the literary uh, skill of, 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 of Chinese uh, textual production. So at least in the prefaces that they, they got, and perhaps they got others that they didn't include because they weren't very positive, but kind of the, the most that they get is um, these authors are, are very skilled authors. They, they obviously know the Confucian tradition um, and have used it in a way to kind of render their own tradition, even though that tradition's uh, kind of off base. That's kind of what these, these prefaces say. Um, so there's, there's not, a whole lot of, uh, not a whole lot of influence outside of the kind of Muslim context itself. Yeah. So is this literature could well be considered as uh, part of a continuation of the broader Confucian tradition? Well, not necessarily a transmission of Islamic knowledge of religion to a different context. If I'm if I'm following you correctly, there are some people that think that some of these texts are uh, kind of apologia in the sense that they are aimed at a non-Muslim audience. 
uh, I, I don't think I don't think that's the case. I think they really are kind of set internally for these folks that are been trained in this in this context. Um, so I, I mean, you they definitely are. Um, I mean, while they're using terminology from these kind of broader traditions, they repurpose it in a way. So so to give you an example, if I, and if, I think I'm addressing your question, but if not, let me know. For example, um, Wang Dayu and Lu Zhe both were never, they never left China, they were never able to go on Hajj, um, but they talk about the importance of going on pilgrimage. And so um, Lu Zhe in his text uh, that he's talking about going on pilgrimage, he says, you know, here are all the circumstances where uh, if any of you meet any of these, you don't have to go on pilgrimage. Um, but of course, going on pilgrimage is like returning to our home. And by returning home, we would serve our parents. So therefore, if you can't go on Hajj, right, if you are filial to your parents, you gain the same merit you would by going on Hajj. Right? And if you're familiar with the Chinese context, right, this idea of filial piety, this is one of the core kind of Confucian values. So they, they kind of repurpose these in, in, in this kind of Islamic way, I guess. Am, am I getting where you want? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I had a, well, I mean, I guess a kind of series of questions. So the fact that they're using very Confucian terms to translate yeah. um, Islamic terms, is this uh, primarily because of the lack of linguistic terms in Chinese to appropriately translate these words? Or are they doing this sort of purpose? to attract a community that already is um, situated within the Confucian worldview. Yeah. And then the sort of follow-up to that is, does that change over time? Mm -hmm. So does the community become more Islamic? Do, let's say, modern translations of the Quran into Chinese replicate this kind of system, or do they change in some way? Yeah, so they do, uh, to kind of go backwards from your question, mm -hmm. uh, Modern renditions uh, don't aren't invested in kind of these core terminology from the Chinese side. Um, however, by the time they're writing, uh, I guess the problem it's not that there's inadequate kind of linguistic tools. It's just that the the linguistic field is so saturated with uh, these core terms, and it's not only from a, a Confucian context, right? There's a rich Buddhist literature. Um, that went through a very similar process uh, when Buddhism came to China. There was kind of uh, rendering of Buddhist texts into the Chinese context. They do very similar things. Um, even, even the Jesuits that were writing around the same time uh, are relying on these kind of loaded terms uh, to communicate. And uh, I, I don't think it's because there's like a lack of other terms, but I think it's just because these are the terms that are meaningful to them. Um, and especially in the context of this kind of coastal, cosmopolitan cities where Muslims are very much part of the Chinese cultural context, uh, they're meaningful to them. So, and, and this is why I think it's tricky because, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm going through these texts, there's like all these multiple referents that are happening simultaneously, uh, both from the Islamic side and from the Chinese side, um, that you have to, to parse out. And of course, I mean, the, the readers in the system you know, may have been at a certain level and others might have been more prepared in terms of their kind of literary context that they're familiar with. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, so the, I, I think they're doing it purposely, but uh, again, I wouldn't, I don't think they're doing it to try to convert people, but rather that these are the, these are the kind of literary context that people are saturated in that they're addressing. Um, so may, maybe to, uh, conversion wouldn't be the right word, but to kind of heighten people's uh, spiritual aptitude or something, right? Where maybe maybe the Muslims that, they were Muslim, but maybe they weren't great Muslims or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So they use this context to kind of heighten that. But I mean, there, there really seems to be no, from, from my reading, evidence that they're trying to get like non-Muslim to convert to Islam through this text. Thanks, Christian. This is, uh, this is great, and it's nice to uh, hear you in person on this subject. Uh, I, I love the subject of how you, of how you know the transmission of these texts gets vernacularized, if you want to say it like that. Yeah. In, in, in these areas, um, and there's sort of a pattern in other contexts that have a closer history to the Islamic sort of early ages, yeah. where these, you know. Sort of outwardly, you know, our outbound geographies will localize the lore of like the founding tradition. So, like Anatolia has sort of, you know, it'll have saints, it'll have Sahabas, it'll have descendants of Sahabas, etc. Now, clearly, this is a pretty late transmission, and so geographically, it's harder to do that. Is there anything that you've come across that sort of leans in that direction outside of just a textual and discursive, you know, vernacularization? Um, something about the geography of I'm not sure if I'm following exactly, but uh, let me give you one example that maybe I think is what you're talking about. Um, there are, written within the same kind of genre, um, there's a very famous text called the Hui Hui Yuan Lai, which is basically the, the coming of Muslims. And it talks about uh, the Chinese Tang Emperor having a dream. And uh, in, in this dream, so it's, it's at a time of turmoil, and this emperor has a dream, and he sees this person with a turban and with uh, a big nose. I guess that becomes the yeah. Chinese characteristic. Uh, and uh, so he sees this, and then uh, he awakes, and then... Um, Muslims come and basically help him save the empire. Um, so there are narratives like this. Um, there's also stories that the, the prophet's uncle uh, was the one who first came with Muslims to China. Um, and I think there's even like, I think there's a gravesite somewhere in China for him. Um, is, this, is this what the kind of stuff you're talking about? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it has to become your own. Right, you know? right, yeah. Uh, and which uh, uncle? what's that? Which uncle do you know? Uh, uh, Saad ibn Abi Waqas, I think. Yeah. And uh, so in the, in this other in this coastal, so maybe one other thing to kind of tie it in a more real history was uh, in uh, the southeastern uh, coastal city of uh, Chuanzhou. Uh, was the oldest mosque there. And it's very kind of Middle Eastern in its aesthetic. Um, it's now a museum. But it seems from about the, the, the 9th through the 11th century, uh, it was highly used. And the reason why it's become really important is because there's a, a kind of large deposit of 
gravestones um, and carvings, and they have uh, lots of Persian and Arabic names, and they have Quranic verses, all written in uh, Arabic, and, um, and this was called the uh, Companions Mosque. There's all sorts of cool stuff going on in China. <laughs> yeah. So I have a quick question, uh, and thank you for, for bringing uh, that up. Uh, my question is about to what extent this context in, in China and Islam, uh, this sort of um, ancient context, inform uh, Southeast Asian Muslims in, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, or the Chinese communities over there, both in the past and currently? Is there any was there any reflection, any exchange on these understandings in, in those contexts? Yeah, that's a tricky question. I don't know a whole lot about that. There are, of course, which you, you may know, right, there are narratives that, that um, some people have argued that Southeast Asia was uh, Islamized, Islamicized, I don't know how you want to call it, from Chinese Muslims that were coming. Um, th that would have been much earlier than this, of course, though. Um, and I haven't looked at it enough to know if those are really, uh, like, convincing sources to say that. Um, they were, by the time these folks were working, so Mada Shen and then some of his students, um, they were uh, certainly involved with other people in South and Southeast Asia. So, um, for example, in um, Mada Shen's uh, diary, his Hajj diary, he, he basically, he goes away for eight years, and he, he went on Hajj, and he stayed in uh, kind of Mecca and Medina for a long time, but he also went to Yemen and Hadramaut, he went to uh, Egypt, he went to uh, Istanbul, and, uh, and then he talks about some of the places where he studied in Southeast Asia. So uh, he, he also does some sort of, uh, I guess... Um, Kind of geographical text talking about geography, and he, t he talks that he studied in uh, Singapore, basically. Uh, I, would, I would assume so, yeah. I don't know. Again, uh, the, the kind of nature of this text, and I, I think I haven't read a ton of them, but I think a lot of them, they're very just kind of like, I went here and I did this, and they're not very detailed, at least say to them. So he tells us he like studied in, in, in Singapore for like two years, uh, but he doesn't really say, like, I was studying with so-and-so and these kind of things. Um, the other thing, kind of in terms of just, like, some of this outside of China context, um, one of the things that I think is really, really interesting is uh, Ma Dishin's, one of his, uh, not direct students, but one of the ones that took over kind of the, uh, the educational system in Yunnan. His name was Ma Lianwan. And he wrote primarily in Arabic. So I think he only has, like, one or two texts uh, in Chinese... Most of his texts are in Arabic, um, but what he did, one of the, one of the uh, Chinese, uh, uh, one of his Arabic texts is he takes uh, what's called the root classic, which was, uh, it was kind of just like a short summary, like a few page summary written by Lu Zhe, right, the pinnacle of this Han Kitab tradition. So uh, he takes that and he renders it into Arabic. And then he publishes it in South Asia. Uh, and then he wrote his own uh, commentary on the, the, the text, right, and published it alongside in South Asia. So to me, I thought that was really interesting. So even though he's seemingly kind of distancing himself from this kind of very Chinese tradition, he still he, that's like key evidence that he sees value in it, right, that not only the Chinese Muslims need to know this, but we need to share this and 
render it uh, accessible to others. So, uh, so yeah, during the, the kind of 19th century, there is this kind of greater, uh, you know, transnational or whatever you want to call it kind of interaction happening. So. Not really. <laughs> they're they're pretty they're pretty uh, unrelated. This the 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 film stuff really uh, kind of uh, arose out of teaching. Uh, I started teaching religion and film, which was always like a really popular class. But I found that there was never really uh, much literature on Islam or Muslims, and uh, the stuff that was out there was really good. But it pretty much all said representation of Muslims are bad, <laughs> and here are some examples of that. So. Uh, so yeah, that kind of led me to say, well, there's got to be other stuff out there. So, so that's kind of what I'm working on now. Is kind of how does uh, how do Muslims represent themselves in film? How do they disrupt these kind of narratives, these dominant narratives that we see or patterns? Um, and of course, there's there's all the all the previous scholarship is really great, but uh, I just want to kind of see what the next step was. So, yeah. Well, again, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it to be uh, here for uh, all my. Uh, I'm most, most interested uh, to know about uh, the main Chinese perception of Islam. Looks like, especially in the 16th century, they were more interested about outside China. Uh, mm -hmm. From my understanding, I know maybe uh, thousands of diplomatic missions between the Ottoman yeah, yeah. and uh, Chinese or delegates that come uh, back and forth. Uh, but clearly, uh, looks like the Chinese are more. They they weren't so they interested were. in it from from the text that I've been reading. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that. Uh, yeah, I can't really recall anything specific about kind of the tradition. Uh, you know, speaking of the tradition of Islam or anything like this, um, in some sort of kind of official discourse or. Uh, yeah, indifference would be a good way to describe it, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, but as, as you know, I mean, they're they're interested in kind of uh, Islamic sciences and how that informs, uh, you know, astronomy and map making and all sorts of stuff. So especially uh, during the Ming too, right? They have all these um, uh, expeditions, you know, globally going to the Middle East, going back and forth. Uh, but even in those accounts, so uh, there is. Uh, uh, this one trip that uh, they they stop in um, in basically what would be Saudi Arabia today, and uh, one of the the Muslim um, scribes goes to Mecca 
and he like describes it, but it's like, I mean, it sounds like he's describing like, uh, you know, like farmland or like he has has like no really kind of explicitly religious connotations um, in its description. It's very kind of just matter of fact of this is what's there, uh, even coming from a Muslim scribe. So, yeah. So an official kind of doctrine. I I haven't seen anything. There's people that I think probably I can point you to that might have better answers for you, but I don't have a good answer for you. Sorry. Great. Well, thank you for hanging and all your great questions. And appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much.